Chapter Twenty of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The journey from our town to the metropolis was a journey of about five hours. It was a little past midday when the four horse stage coach by which I was a passenger got into the ravel of traffic frayed out about the cross keys. Wood Street, Cheapside, London. We Britons had at that time particularly settled that it was treasonable to doubt our having and our being the best of everything. Otherwise, while I was scared by the immensity of London, I think I might have had some faint doubts whether it was not rather ugly, crooked, narrow, and dirty. Mr. Jaggers had duly sent me his address. It was Little Britain, and he had written after it on his card just out of Smithfield and close by the coach-office. Nevertheless, a hackney coachman, who seemed to have as many capes to his greasy greatcoat as he was years old, packed me up in his coach and hemmed me in with a folding and jingling barrier of steps, as if he were going to take me fifty miles. His getting on his box, which I remember to have been decorated with an old weather-stained pea-green hammer-cloth, moth-eaten into rags, it was quite a work of time. It was a wonderful equipage, with six great coronets outside, and ragged things behind it, for I don't know how many footmen to hold on by, and a harrow below them to prevent amateur footmen from yielding to the temptation. I had scarcely had time to enjoy the coach and to think how like a straw-yard it was, and yet how like a rag-shop, and to wonder why the horses' nose-bags were kept inside, when I observed the coachman beginning to get down, as if we were going to stop presently. And stop presently we did, in a gloomy street, at certain offices with an open door, whereupon was painted, Mr. Jaggers. How much? I asked the coachman. The coachman answered, a shilling, unless you wish to make it more. I naturally said I had no wish to make it more. And it must be a shilling, observed the coachman. I don't want to get into trouble. I know him. He darkly closed an eye at Mr. Jagger's name and shook his head. When he had got his shilling and had in the course of time completed the ascent to his box and had got away, which appeared to relieve his mind, I went into the front office with my little portmanteau in my hand and asked, was Mr. Jaggers at home? He is not, returned the clerk. He is in court at present. Am I addressing Mr. Pip? I signified that he was addressing Mr. Pip. Mr. Jaggers left word. Would you wait in his room? He couldn't say how long he might be, having a case on. But it stands to reason, his time being valuable, that he won't be longer than he can help. With those words, the clerk opened the door and ushered me into an inner chamber at the back. Here we found a gentleman with one eye in a velveteen suit and knee-breeches, who wiped his nose with his sleeve on being interrupted in the perusal of the newspaper. "'Go and wait outside, Mike,' said the clerk. I began to say that I hoped I was not interrupting, when the clerk shoved this gentleman out with as little ceremony as I ever saw used, and tossing his fur cap out after him, left me alone. Mr. Jagger's room was lighted by a skylight only. It was a most dismal place. The skylight, eccentrically pitched like a broken head, and the distorted adjoining houses, looking as if they had twisted themselves, to peep down at me through it. There were not so many papers about as I should have expected to see, 
and there were some odd objects about that I should not have expected to see, such as a rusty old pistol, a sword in a scabbard, several strange-looking boxes and packages, and two dreadful casts on a shelf of faces peculiarly swollen and twitchy about the nose. Mr. Jagger's own high-backed chair was of deadly black horsehair, with rows of brass nails round it like a coffin, and I fancied I could see how he leaned back in it and bit his forefinger at the client's. The room was but small, and the client seemed to have had a habit of backing up against the wall, the wall, especially opposite to Mr. Jagger's chair, being greasy with shoulders. I recalled, too, that the one-eyed gentleman had shuffled forth against the wall when I was the innocent cause of his being turned out. I sat down in the clientele chair, placed over against Mr. Jagger's chair, and became fascinated by the dismal atmosphere of the place. I called to mind that the clerk had the same air of knowing something to everybody else's disadvantage as his master had. I wondered how many other clerks there were upstairs, and whether they all claimed to have the same detrimental mastery of their fellow creatures. I wondered what was the history of all the odd litter about the room, and how it came there. I wondered whether the two swollen faces were of Mr. Jagger's family, and if he were so unfortunate as to have a pair of such ill-looking relations. Why he stuck them on that dusty perch for the blacks and flies to settle on, instead of giving them a place at home. Of course I had no experience of a London summer day, and my spirits may have been oppressed by the hot exhausted air, and by the dust and grit that lay thick on everything. But I sat wondering and waiting in Mr. Jagger's close room, until I really could not bear the two casts on the shelf above Mr. Jagger's chair, and got up and went out. When I told the clerk that I would like to take a turn in the air while I waited, he advised me to go round the corner, and I should come into Smithfield. So I came into Smithfield, and the shameful place, being all a smear with filth and fat and blood and foam, seemed to stick to me. So I rubbed it off with all possible speed by turning into a street where I saw the great black dome of St. Paul's bulging at me from behind a grim stone building, which a bystander said was Newgate Prison. Following the wall of the jail, I found the roadway covered with straw to deaden the noise of passing vehicles and from this, and from the quantity of people standing about smelling strongly of spirits and beer, I inferred that the trials were on. While I looked about me here, an exceedingly dirty and partially drunk Minister of Justice asked me if I would like to step in and hear a trial or so, informing me that he could give me front place for half a crown, whence I should command a full view of the Lord Chief Justice in his wig and robes, mentioning that awful personage like a waxwork and presently offering him at the reduced price of eighteen pence. As I declined the proposal on the plea of an appointment, he was so good as to take me into a yard and show me where the gallows was kept, and also where people were publicly whipped, and then he showed me the debtor's door, out of which culprits came to be hanged, heightening the interest of that dreadful portal by giving me to understand that, for on em, would come out at the door the day after tomorrow at eight in the morning to be killed in a row. This was horrible, and gave me a sickening idea of London, the more so as the Lord Chief Justice's proprietor wore, from his hat down to his boots and up again to his pocket-handkerchief inclusive, mildewed clothes, which had evidently not belonged to him originally, and which I took it into my head he had bought cheap of the executioner. Under these circumstances I thought myself well rid of him for a shilling. 
I dropped into the office to ask if Mr. Jaggers had come in yet, and found he had not, and I strolled out again. This time I made the tour of Little Britain, and turned into Bartholomew Close, and now I became aware that other people were waiting about for Mr. Jaggers as well as I. There were two men, of secret appearance, lounging in Bartholomew Close, and thoughtfully fitting their feet into the cracks of the pavement as they talked together, one of whom said to the other when they first passed me that, Jaggers would do it if it was to be done. There was a knot of three men and two women standing at a corner, and one of the women was crying on her dirty shawl, and the other comforted her by saying, as she pulled her own shawl over her shoulders, Jaggers is for Amelia, and what more could you have? There was a red-eyed little Jew who came into the close while I was loitering there, in company with a second little Jew, whom he sent upon an errand, and while the messenger was gone, I remarked this Jew, who was of a highly excitable temperament, performing a jig of anxiety under a lamp-post, and accompanying himself in a kind of frenzy with the words, O oh, Jaggerth, 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 in all other than Camagath, give me Jaggerth. These testimonies to the popularity of my guardian made a deep impression on me, and I admired and wondered more than ever. At length, as I was looking out at the iron gate of Bartholomew Close into Little Britain, I saw Mr. Jaggers coming across the road towards me. All the others who were waiting saw him at the same time, and there was quite a rush at him. Mr. Jaggers, putting a hand on my shoulder, and walking me on at his side without saying anything to me, addressed himself to his followers. First he took the two secret men. "'Now I have nothing to say to you,' said Mr. Jaggers, throwing his finger at them. "'I want to know no more than I know. As to the result, it's a toss-up. I told you from the first it was a toss-up. Have you paid Wemmick? We made the money up this morning, sir, said one of the men submissively, while the other perused Mr. Jagger's face. I don't ask when you made it up, or where, or whether you made it up at all. Has Wemmick got it? Yes, sir, said both men together. Very well, then you may go. Now I won't have it, said Mr. Jaggers, waving his hand at them to put them behind him. If you say a word to me, I'll throw up the case. We thought, Mr. Jaggers, one of the men began pulling off his hat. That's what I told you not to do, said Mr. Jaggers. You thought, I think for you, that's enough for you. If I want you, I know where to find you. I don't want you to find me. No, I won't have it. I won't hear a word. The two men looked at one another as Mr. Jaggers waved them behind again, and humbly fell back, and were heard no more. And now you, said Mr. Jaggers, suddenly stopping and turning on the two women with the shawls, for whom the three men had meekly separated. "'Oh, Amelia, is it?' "'Yes, Mr. Jaggers.' "'And do you remember,' retorted Mr. Jaggers, "'that but for me you wouldn't be here and couldn't be here?' "'Oh, yes, sir,' exclaimed both women together. "'Lord bless you, sir. Well, we knows that.' "'Then why,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'do you come here?' "'My bill, sir,' the crying woman pleaded. "'Now I'll tell you what,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'once for all.' If you don't know that your bill's in good hands, I know it, and if you come here bothering about your bill, I'll make an example of both your bill and you, and let him slip through my fingers. Have you paid Wemmick? Oh, yes, sir, every farthing. Very well, then you have done all you've got to do. Say another word, one single word, and Wemmick shall give you your money back. This terrible threat caused the two women to fall off immediately. No one remained now but the excitable Jew, who had already raised the skirts of Mr. Jagger's coat to his lips several times. 
i don't know this man said mr jaggers in the same devastating strain what does this fellow want i fear mr jaggers home brother to abraham la ruth who's he said mr jaggers let go of my coat the suitor kissing the hem of the garment again before relinquishing it replied abraham la ruth on supposition of plate you're too late said mr jaggers i am over the way holy father mr jaggers cried my excitable acquaintance turning white don't say you're again abraham la ruth i am said mr jaggers and there's an end to it get out of the way mr jaggers half a moment my own cousin's gone to mr wemmick at this present minute to offer him any terms mr jaggers half a quarter of a moment if you'd have the condescension to be bought off from t'other side at any superior price money no object mr jaggers mr my guardian threw his supplicant off with supreme indifference and left him dancing on the pavement as if it were red hot without further interruption we reached the front office where we found the clerk and the man in velveteen with the fur cap here's mike said the clerk getting down from his stool and approaching mr jaggers confidentially oh said mr jaggers turning to the man who was pulling a lock of hair in the middle of his forehead like the bull in cock robin pulling at the bell-rope your man comes on this afternoon well well master jaggers returned mike in the voice of a sufferer from a constitutional cold are a deal of trouble i found one sir as might do what is he prepared to swear well master jaggers said mike wiping his nose on his fur cap this time in a general way anything mr jaggers suddenly became most irate now i warned you before said he throwing his forefinger at the terrified client that if you ever presumed to talk in that way here i'd make an example of you you infernal scoundrel how dare you tell me that the client looked scared but bewildered too as if he were unconscious what he had done spoony said the clerk in a low voice giving him a stir with his elbow soft head need you say it face to face now i ask you you blundering booby said my guardian very sternly once more and for the last time what the man you have brought here is prepared to swear mike looked hard at my guardian as if he were trying to learn a lesson from his face and slowly replied either to character or to having been in his company and never left him all the night in question now be careful in what station of life is this man mike looked at his cap and looked at the floor and looked at the ceiling and looked at the clerk and even looked at me before beginning to reply in a nervous manner uh, we've dressed him up like when my guardian blustered out what you will will you spoony added the clerk again with another stir after some helpless casting about mike brightened and began again he's dressed like a spectable pieman sort of pastry cook is he here asked my guardian i left him said mike a setting on some doorsteps round the corner take him past that window and let me see him the window indicated was the office window we all three went to it behind the wire blind and presently saw the client go by in an accidental manner with a murderous-looking tall individual in a short suit of white linen and a paper cap this guileless confectioner was not by any means sober and had a black eye in the green stage of recovery which was painted over 
"'Tell him to take his witness away directly,' said my guardian to the clerk, in extreme disgust, "'and ask him what he means by bringing such a fellow as that.' My guardian then took me into his own room, and while he lunched, standing from a sandwich-box and a pocket-flask of sherry, he seemed to bully his very sandwich as he ate it, informed me what arrangements he had made for me. I was to go to Barnard's Inn, to young Mr. Pocket's rooms, where a bed had been sent in for my accommodation. I was to remain with young Mr. Pocket until Monday. On Monday I was to go with him to his father's house on a visit that I might try how I liked it. Also I was told what my allowance was to be. It was a very liberal one, and had handed to me from one of my guardian's drawers the cards of certain tradesmen with whom I was to deal for all kinds of clothes and such other things as I could reason want. "'You will find your credit good, Mr. Pip,' said my guardian, whose flask of sherry smelt like a whole caskful, as he hastily refreshed himself. "'But I shall by this means be able to check your bills, and to pull you up if I find you out running the constable. Of course you'll go wrong somehow, but that's no fault of mine.' After I had pondered a little over this encouraging sentiment, I asked Mr. Jaggers if I could send for a coach, which he said it was not worth while. I was so near my destination. Wemmick should walk round with me if I pleased. I then found that Wemmick was the clerk in the next room. Another clerk was rung down from upstairs to take his place while he was out, and I accompanied him into the street after shaking hands with my guardian. We found a new set of people lingering outside but Wemmick made a way among them by saying coolly, yet decisively, "'I tell you it's no use. He won't have a word to say to one of you.' And we soon got clear of them, and went on side by side. End of chapter 20